The price of a house in New Zealand is one of the highest in the Western world in real terms. This week's Radio New Zealand Insight looks at the social consequences of costly homes and asks what, if anything, can or needs to be done about it. When it comes to buying a house, the row of noughts on the price tag seems to go on forever. Nothing the average person even contemplates buying comes close. A home in New Zealand isn't just expensive in nominal terms, it's far dearer compared with earnings than in most other similar countries. I'm Eric Frickberg and in this issue of Insight we look at the affordability of homes in New Zealand and the challenge to people who want to say goodbye to the landlord. At $560,000 for the first opportunity then, I'm selling Be Clear, are you sure here? At $560,000 for the second call... All done, all started, third and final call, then I sell away at $560,000. My congratulations to you, Sums like this and much higher are common. Despite a slight easing of prices in the three years since the global financial crisis ended a worldwide economic boom. Such prices can put homeowners under great financial stress. The difficulties can also spill onto tenants, as landlords charge high rents to cover their own high costs. One factor behind the top asking dollar is a housing shortage. The problem is especially severe in Auckland, where Jenny Dixon is Professor of Planning at Auckland University. There is a looming crisis here in Auckland, and it's beginning to show in other cities as well, but it's very obvious to researchers and policymakers here in Auckland, and it really does need to grab the public attention. We're already short of something like about 10,000 units. It really does put enormous pressure on where people are actually going to live and where they're going to be able to afford to live. The rising cost of housing has prompted much analysis of its social consequences. The findings suggest too much money spent on housing means not enough left over for other things, many of them necessities. A specialist in community health, Philippa Howden-Chapman from the Otago Medical School in Wellington, fears housing costs could cancel out the benefits of social programmes designed to help the poor. Working for families was a, obviously redistribution of income to try and increase the incomes of those on and low and middle incomes, but it presupposed um, that housing costs would stay about the same. Um, but because of the housing boom, um, making houses more expensive to buy and consequently having an effect on rent, that meant that le- people had less money uh, for disposable income than they had before. And so there's been a concern that the amount of disposable income after people have paid their housing costs is actually decreasing. An associate professor, Michael Baker, is a colleague of Philippa Howden Chapman, and his research indicates rental homes are often crowded as people cram together to share costs, and this can bring ill health. One of the key risk factors for children in particular is exposure to household crowding. It greatly increases the transmission of a lot of important infectious diseases. And we've shown in New Zealand that this is a a demonstrated risk factor for meningococcal disease, tuberculosis and rheumatic fever. And we we find those diseases have much higher rates in mind, Pacific families and children. They are also the children most exposed to household crowding, and they're also exposed to a lack of housing affordability. So we think there's a very clear causal path from uh, unaffordable housing to household crowding to these very serious infectious diseases. To social workers like Stephanie Durbel of the Newtown Union Health Service in Wellington, situations like this occur every day. She cites just one example. Family of five, um, both um, low-income workers, um, paying rent and um, yeah, having $40 per week left. 
If high housing costs exacerbate social problems for low-income people, they also frustrate long-standing desires by middle-class people to follow a New Zealand tradition and move into their own home. People waiting at this Wellington bus queue had no doubt about their disappointment. People like Adele Gangelin, newly appointed as an investigator for the Inland Revenue Department. It's just very off-putting. It's just easier for me to pay rent as opposed to even bother looking for a house in the, within a decent price range. You see the quarter-acre dream and the, you know, it's been fulfilled by everybody. and It's frustrating, but unfortunately I have to probably agree with the idea that I'm going to have to rent for a couple of years now. Equally frustrated is Sarah Bickerton, a Wellingtonian recently returned from getting a PhD in the United States. I've got a student loan, as we all do, having gone through university, and there's no way I can afford that and um, housing prices. I talk to my friends who are my age, living back in the States. It's still reasonable for them as 30-somethings to be able to put down a deposit and get a mortgage, whereas here you're talking half a million dollars, and um, I simply can't do that. I'm getting married in six months, and I don't see us being able to buy a house for quite a number of years. Neve Waters is an Irish-born public servant who'll continue to rent a home after getting married to her New Zealand partner, and she'll delay having children as a result. I've always wanted the, the garden and the, you know, in the suburbs and that kind of thing, so I think it would delay it, definitely. And it's something that we've discussed. I mean, I've got neighbours that have babies in flats down, three flights of stairs and small flats, and I just, I just don't want to do it. So, yeah, I definitely think it would affect our decision. Shelter is mankind's next most important need after food, but in New Zealand has spiralled into unaffordability for many. A report by The Economist magazine published in the past few days said New Zealand is among nine countries where houses are overvalued by about 25%. Hugh Pavlich is the New Zealand researcher for the American think tank Demographia, which analyses a range of economic data for the main English-speaking nations. He deplores the situation New Zealand is now in. High bubble prices fail on all counts. We could even start, if, if you like, from the moral aspect of it, that people have the right to the opportunity of affordable housing. There are also economic, environmental and social reasons why we need to have affordable housing. So keeping these housing prices grossly inflated, it's roughly six times household earnings, is not doing anybody any good and is a huge drag on the whole um, New Zealand economy. Housing inflation has been a recurring problem in New Zealand, dressing itself up as an economic boom and galloping away from general inflation, leaving many ordinary citizens floundering in its wake. There was serious housing inflation in the mid-1970s and mid-1980s, but this was matched by high general and wage inflation, which softened its sting. Wage rises that peaked as high as 18% allowed earnings to keep up with prices. Housing inflation returned on its own in the mid-1990s, unaccompanied by rises in other sectors, but this failed to ring alarm bells. Then eight years ago, the biggest price rush of all, halted but not reversed by the global financial crisis, which pushed home ownership beyond the reach of many young and middle-aged workers who found themselves unable to enjoy the home ownership their parents and grandparents took for granted. How we build for the future is the standard by which our children will judge us. Nothing like a good home to keep them off the streets.
Those were the 1950s, the days of institutions now all but forgotten. State Advances Corporation, Child Benefit Capitalization, Returned Services Loans, designed so that the state could give ordinary people a helping hand into home ownership. The home the Minister of Housing, Mr Sullivan, has just visited was built for £2,850. Home seekers hear the leader of the opposition, Mr Nash, say how the country's working together in a big housing drive. That was then, this is now. According to projections from its own big new council, Auckland is so far removed from the vision of Sir Walter Nash, it's building less than a third of the homes it needs to build to meet its own forecast growth. A professor of planning at Auckland University, Jenny Dixon, says unaffordable housing has crept up on New Zealand through a kind of neglect. Housing is one of those areas that kind of falls between the cracks in relation to where does the responsibility lie? And we know that government takes up some dimensions of that in relation to the provision of state housing. We know that local government regulates land supply and those sorts of things. There's never kind of one owner of the problem. And, of course, government policy uh, does change over time. That all combines, I think, to make this a very messy area. And we really do need to take a sort of very hard look at where we're going. Getting exact figures on home ownership is hard. Data from the National Census shows home ownership rates falling from a high of 73.7% in 1986 to 66.9% in 2006. However, the 2011 census was postponed by the Christchurch earthquake, so latest figures are unavailable. But the recently disbanded publicly funded think tank, the Centre for Housing Research Aotearoa New Zealand, forecast last year that home ownership rates could fall to 61.9% in the next five years. An Auckland housing researcher, Alan Johnson, who works for the Salvation Army, the Child Poverty Action Group and others, thinks housing affordability is a challenge that has eased slightly in the past few years, but not nearly enough. What's tended to happen over the last three years since the global financial collapse has been that house prices have moderated, but but it's not significant. And the reality is that they still remain quite unaffordable, uh, particularly for you know Generation X and Generation Y, and also for low-income households. So not a lot of houses are being built, particularly in Auckland. You know the market settings where they are right now in terms of prices relative to incomes aren't sufficient to encourage people to, to build more houses, as well as having an outcome where housing is relatively unaffordable in historic terms. At the heart of this is an ugly problem with an anodyne name, the intermediate housing market. This sector of the market is made up of people with a steady job but who don't get paid enough to satisfy a bank and get a mortgage. As the years pass, without these people buying a house, a wedge is driven into home ownership rates, pulling them down with each passing year. Professor Dixon of Auckland University says people from many different backgrounds are affected. That's the group we can describe as can work, can't buy. It includes blue-collar workers from the trades and machinery sectors, white-collar workers, managers, professionals, associated professionals, those people working in services and sales. And the largest proportion of households in the inter intermediate housing market are couples and singles with children. This market is greatest for the 20 to 40-year-old age group, so it affects a lot of children. In the last census, in 2006, there were 318,000 children living in rental accommodation, 78% of them involving private landlords. That figure is expected to have risen when the next census is done. 
Social housing loudly proclaims its ability to help, but in fact only 5% of homes fall into this category, such as state or council housing. The rest are privately owned. And by 2016, the intermediate housing market is forecast to rise to almost 220,000 households, with half a million children or more growing up in a rented home. A favourite topic for New Zealand's housing critics is comparative costs in cities in the United States, such as Houston, Atlanta or Dallas. Hugh Pavlich cites numbers to prove how much easier it is to buy a house there than here. When we have a look at the markets in North America, for example, we have a look at, say, Atlanta, where people are paying 2.1 times a household income to buy a home. In Dallas-Fort Worth, it's 2.5 times. And in Houston, it's 2.9 times. Here in Christchurch, for example, it's 6 times. In Auckland, it's about 6.4. Tauranga, are about 6.8, 6.9. Mr Pavlich describes a trip to investigate housing in Houston. They're getting new homes out on the fringes for 140,000 starter homes, that is, and these comprise 235 square metre new home, four bedrooms, master ensuite, a double garage, separate dining room, on a 700 square metre lot, all for about 140, 150,000. At 150,000, they're getting ducted air conditioning as well. So that gives you some idea of the uh, exorbitant pricing that we're paying for fringe housing here in the cities of New Zealand. A look through the sales website Craigslist shows similar prices in Cleveland and Philadelphia, while in Kansas City, with a population bigger than Auckland, houses were down to $35,000. So why are New Zealanders weighed down by a need to find housing dollars they just don't have? The government wants to find out and has asked the Productivity Commission to investigate. Its chairman is Murray Sherwin, and he says an interim report on this is due out within days. We had a massive house price surge through the uh, period from about 2000 to 2007, uh, and in the course of that, the uh, typical uh, income-to-house price ratios really blew out. Uh, housing affordability is a very important issue for uh, homeowners and aspiring homeowners everywhere uh, and it's a major element in how people think of their well-being and their accumulation of wealth over time. But why did this happen? Why did houses become so expensive? The Productivity Commission's interim report will hopefully give some answers. Mr Sherwin isn't saying what will be in that report but a briefing he produced before the study began gives some clues and one strand of argument produces near universal agreement. The home building industry, says Murray Sherwin, isn't as efficient as it should be. Our industry is dominated by very small businesses, one, two, three-person building firms, who are mostly doing just one or maybe two houses a year. Most of our housing is bespoke housing. It's done to uh, an individual, a unique design. The big gains in housing affordability in other countries come from large-scale operators doing uh, much more modular or standardised housing, and which they can do at much lower price. This view produces little disagreement from the building industry itself. Warwick Quinn runs the Master Builders Federation and says poor productivity has been a problem for a long time. 
It's a result of the way the sector's made up. It's a huge number of small industries. Therefore, the ability to have great productivity gains in an area where 95% of them are made up of businesses of four or five people means that the minute someone's out, there's a problem with you know, capacity. Secondly, there's a lot of reworks in the sector. A recent survey done by some have indicated it could be as high as 30%. We're also very small in the area of sort of building size. So when it comes to trying to make up significant new ways of developing things, it's difficult to implement given we have very low levels of activity across the sector and uh, we're spread very thinly across New Zealand. We don't have the volumes that really sort of warrant doing anything of a major change. This problem isn't being ignored and the industry and the government have set a target of boosting productivity and home building by 20% by 2020. If people can agree on problems within the construction industry, they can also agree on another cause of high house prices, a population that rose for much of the decade faster than in most other OECD countries. The more people there are in this country, the more houses are needed to put them in, and that pushes up demand and consequently price. This question figures in the issues paper released by the Productivity Commission ahead of its inquiry. And it was supported at a presentation in Wellington by Peter Jarrett, a Harvard-educated economist who now works for the OECD in Paris. He argued high immigration levels and high natural fertility have helped push up New Zealand's house prices. The drivers that we've identified as getting the recent cycle, the latest cycle, underway were uh, strong net migration and uh, easy credit conditions. But interestingly enough, in a comparative international sense, it isn't so much the, uh, the migration that makes uh, New Zealand stand out, it's uh, overall population growth. So that while the role of migration was considerable, it's with respect to the natural rate of increase that New Zealand really stands out. A rising population obviously increases demand for housing and thus pushes up its price, but there's less unanimity on the role of tax breaks in escalating house prices. One of the big issues the Productivity Commission set out to examine was the charge that the tax system has long been biased in favour of property speculation away from savings or new enterprises. Last year's tax working group, chaired by the Dean of Commerce at Victoria University, Bob Buckle, concurred with this view. What we found was well known amongst those involved in investment decisions that the tax system did have a bias in favour of investing in, in property. While incomes are taxed at a progressive rate and while investments in property aren't necessarily taxed. In the course of issuing that report, the tax working group found that New Zealand landlords had $200 billion invested in property, but that far from paying any tax, they actually got a tax credit of $150 million in 2008. Those figures, though, proved controversial. Andrew King represents landlords, many with just one or two properties, as president of the Property Investors Federation, and he flatly rejects the tax working group's numbers on the amount of money invested in property. There are around about 500,000 rental properties in New Zealand, so if their figure was correct, then the average rental property would be worth $400,000, which doesn't make sense. A more realistic figure was done by ourselves and also the Auckland University, somewhere between 60 and 80 billion. 
Andrew King also contests the tax deduction findings of the tax working group. The tax write-off that the tax review came up with, that $150 million, uh, was actually only for one year, 2008. Uh, in their own uh, handbook, they've actually got a, uh, a graph which extrapolates the, uh, the amount of tax paid by rental property owners over the last 21 years. In that 21 years, there was actually only two years when rental property owners didn't contribute to tax. So it's a bit of a misnomer that rental property owners do not pay tax. Professor Buckle doesn't defend the $200 billion figure, but still believes there was a strong tax bias in favour of landlords. But he says many of these objections were met in the government's response to his working group. These came through in the 2010 budget, where the government set out to reform the tax arrangements that had been so criticised. The Revenue Minister, Peter Dunn, explains the changes. The two ones that probably had the most impact on property were the elimination of depreciation. That will take out about $265 million, um, out of the residential property sector. And the other one was a complete restructuring of the loss attributing qualifying company regime, whereby previously people were using income derived from property to uh, minimise their overall liability for tax. That change um, will also have a huge impact on the heat in the property market that was around at the time. Mr Dunn says Treasury expects landlords to pay $770 million a year more in tax than they did before as a result of those changes. But he believes in bringing them in the government has probably gone far enough. There's nothing else being considered at this stage. We're satisfied that the range of measures that Budget 2010 introduced will be sufficient. We will need to know precisely how the regime is working in practice. But it was put in place because there was a recognised problem identified by the tax working group that property investment in New Zealand was being distorted by existing tax arrangements. It didn't recommend a capital gains tax, but it did recommend some other measures along the lines that we've taken with regard to depreciation in particular and also the change in the LAQC regime. It's true that the price of an average house fell when the global financial crisis began, but then it plateaued and is now inching back up, though still without enough volume or consistency to prove a trend. The tax changes indicated property investors played a big part in earlier rises and are intended to deter them from driving any further price hikes. But Andrew King of the Property Investors Federation says in fact property investors were not to blame for the last big boom. Most properties in New Zealand are actually owner-occupied. It's first-home buyers and subsequent home buyers who are actually the majority of buyers and they're the ones that are driving up the price. There's more of them, and so they have a bigger effect uh, on the market. Also, talking to a lot of the members of the property investor associations around the country, many of them actually get outbid by uh, especially first-home buyers um, who tend to buy more on emotion. Uh, rental property owners tend to buy on, on facts and figures and what the return is going to be, and so they, they don't want to pay a high price for their rental properties. In fact, they want to pay as low a price as they possibly can. Often they're actually outbid by uh, first-home buyers especially. Other commentators pick up on this point that housing inflation means people sometimes pay more for a house than they know they should because they think in future it'll be worth still more. But others say house prices, which catapulted out of control during the last Labour government, could have been held in check if the right sort of tax changes had been brought in before the latest boom really took hold. A housing researcher, Alan Johnson, is one who holds this view. 
probably the period where we could have made some adjustments was around 2001, 2002. What should uh, we have done then? Well, ideally, we probably should have brought in some sort of capital gains tax. Um, ideally, too, while the Reserve Bank Governor was waxing lyrical about the um, forthcoming house price bubble, the reality is he did nothing about it in terms of trying to control bank lending. The banks largely, through their sort of aggressive lending and looking for market share, I think, drove up house prices by offering people higher and higher levels of indebtedness. People took the bait and, and of course, paid more for the same house they could have bought for 10% less last year, etc. So... There were some adjustments that could have been made around our taxation policy and around our banking policy, but those adjustments weren't made. Documents from that period suggest a range of reform proposals came out which were ignored, leading to the business commentator Gareth Morgan's famous denunciation of the Clark government for what he termed cowardice under fire. The Reserve Bank later publicly admitted that it acted too slowly in containing the 2003-2008 to 2008 housing bubble. Those failings don't mean action shouldn't be taken even at this late stage, according to Hugh Pavlich. I think we've got to really stop treating the housing market as some sort of casino um, and as, an, as, sort of a, as a way to make easy money. There are far bigger issues than that. You know, housing is just shelter, essentially, and we've got to make sure that Kiwis get the best deal possible. The rising cost of housing is said by some to be changing the makeup of New Zealand communities. One such commentator is Alan Johnson, who fears a social barrier is developing between those who can just afford to clamber into home ownership and those who can't, which aggravates existing divisions. What we've observed, for example, is that there is sort of a growing apartheid, really, in, in places like Auckland, where you have some suburbs where poor people live and some suburbs where middle-income people live, and the middle-income people don't like mixing. And so we're getting a greater segregation, particularly along um, economic lines, but also reflected in terms of the concentrations of particularly Pacific Islanders. How do you feel about that social trend? Um, it's frightening, to be honest, in some respects, because once people stop mixing, once you know the people who are the poorest in our society don't live anywhere near where I live, politically we can ignore them. The evidence suggests New Zealand is once again at crunch point. After a short hiatus, house prices are inching upwards though trends are unclear. The Productivity Commission says house prices in this country rose 180% nationwide in real terms since 1990. The government is clearly concerned that this might resume when most experts want a gradual but prolonged easing of prices and is now hoping the Productivity Commission will present some workable solutions to the problem of putting a roof over every New Zealander's head. That programme was written and presented by Eric Frickberg. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by William Saunders. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we'd love to hear from you at insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.